from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. I'm Ty Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 16 minutes. Biden speeds up his push for America to go electric. As farmers and ranchers in the West battle drought and grasshoppers. So widespread that I'm afraid it's going to be um, pretty devastating. Current emergency drought relief is creating some roadblocks. A rising rate in rural vaccinations. We are definitely seeing an, an, an uptick. We'll show you the states seeing an uptick. And in John's world. Puppies, but not babies. Well, happening this week, efforts are underway to prevent the first cases of African swine fever in the Northern Hemisphere from spreading to our shores. The Dominican Republic announcing it's limiting shipments of pigs and calling on its military to try to contain the spread of the virus. Now, Dominican officials are reportedly slaughtering tens of thousands of pigs after it now says it's detected outbreaks in 11 of the country's 32 provinces. The Dominican Ag Ministry making the announcement as the U.S. and Mexico tightened border checks to avoid spreading the infection. We don't accept any pork or pork products from either the Dominican Republic or Haiti as it is now because they have classical swine fever. We also have been in contact with the Department of Homeland Security and the Customs and Border Patrol people to increase our surveillance and our mitigations. The total Dominican herd numbers are 1.8 million. We've been keeping you updated on the disease, which actually originated in Africa before spreading to Asia and Europe. It killed hundreds of millions of pigs and reshaped global meat and feed markets along with it. Well, another big development for the pork industry, an appeals court rejection of a petition to strike down a Proposition 12 in California. That ballot initiative voters approved in 2018. And now some say as a result, California shoppers may soon be asking, where's the bacon? Prop 12 is set to go into effect January 1st. That's after the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit denied a petition filed by the National Pork Producers Council and the American Farm Bureau to stop the animal welfare initiative. MPPC and Farm Bureau are now evaluating the decision and what the next steps will be. Prop 12 will impose new standards for animal housing, but it also impacts anyone selling into California. Some economists say this could drive up the cost of popular pork products like bacon. Well, Tyson Foods has announced it will require its 120,000 U.S. employees to be vaccinated against the coronavirus. The company is saying in a release that it wants all team members fully vaccinated by November 1st, subject to ongoing discussions with unions representing its workers. And it will give employees a $200 bonus for getting the vaccination. It reports almost half of its workforce has already been vaccinated and that infection rates among its workers remain low. It says it will allow exemptions for medical or religious reasons. United Food and Commercial Workers International Union is pushing back on the mandate. Union President Mark Perrone says they have encouraged members to get vaccinated. However, they are concerned about Tyson's vaccine mandate before, quote, the FDA has fully approved the vaccine, end quote. With the announcement, Tyson becomes the largest U.S. food company to require vaccination. Well, President Biden is continuing to push to get more electric vehicles on the road, signing an executive order this week. The order sets a goal of having 50% of all new vehicles sold in 2030 by zero emissions. That includes battery electric, plug-in hybrid vehicle, or fuel cell electric vehicles. The administration also unveiling updated emission standards for light cars and trucks covering model years 2021 to 2026. 
A White House fact sheet making no mention of how ethanol or biofuels would possibly work into the president's plan. The Renewable Fuels Association releasing a statement with Jeff Cooper saying, quote, the overarching goal should be to reach net zero emissions as quickly as possible without dictating the pathway to get there or putting all of our eggs into one technology basket. We believe any plan to decarbonize the transportation sector should recognize the massive opportunity for low carbon liquid fuels like ethanol to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from internal combustion engines in the near term, end quote. Well, a new program from USDA will help farmers in one of the hardest hit drought areas right now, the Klamath River Basin. Upper Klamath Lake normally helps irrigate over 200,000 acres of farmland in Klamath County, Oregon, and two counties in California. But a federal agency made a decision to stop feeding the lake due to extreme drought conditions. Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack traveling to Oregon to talk about the program this week. Under the plan, USDA is providing a $15 million block grant to the Klamath River Drought Response Agency. The local agency will offer payments to ag producers to reduce irrigation demand. Their irrigation water just isn't going to be there. As a result, they're not going to have a crop. So what we're trying to do is find a way to help them weather this current storm, but really look towards the future and how do we maybe engage in practices that don't take so much water. Maybe we consider looking at different crops, looking at different practices. Oregon Democratic Governor Kate Brown applauding the program's announcement, adding they need to continue to work toward a long-term drought solution for the region, calling the relief efforts a down payment toward that goal. And the battle for water is growing more intense in California. That's where amid drought conditions, the state's water regulators voted to enact a drastic emergency order, one that will bar thousands of farmers from using stream and river water in the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta watershed. The order would apply to thousands of senior water rights across a wide swath of the state. Officials saying the move is unprecedented. The regulation will go into effect in two weeks. All right, that's it for the news. While some drought relief definitely needed in the West, is any on the horizon? We'll check in with meteorologist Mike Hoffman next. Find farm equipment on Machine Repeats Auction. Items close August 17th. Go to auctions.machinerepeat.com to register. No reserve, no buyer fees. Start bidding now at auctions.machinerepeat.com. Meteorologist Mike Hoffman joins us now with weather. Mike, August really got off to a rather cool start for many of our viewers, but it looks like that break from the heat, well, it was extremely brief. Good morning to you, Tyne. Yeah, most of the Midwest, Great Lakes, Northeast, all started the month cool. They're going to warm up now. The West, Northwest anyway, going to cool down briefly and then warm back up. We're going to show all that to you, but first of all, here's the root zone moisture. This wet area, Arkansas and surrounding states, has just been there for months on end. Uh, we have some wet areas on up into the Great Lakes, a new area over eastern North Carolina, southeastern Virginia. And look at this. Some of these wet areas that uh, started to show up in New Mexico and Arizona, moving on up into the uh, western portions of the Rockies. Uh, now, it's always dry out there this time of the year, so this is just wetter than normal. But it's gotten worse over North Dakota, parts of Montana, 
northern Minnesota, and it continues to be very bad, obviously, along the uh, west coast and southwest Pennsylvania also. There's a drought monitor. Uh, you can see long-term drought not showing up in southwest Pennsylvania yet, but it continues to show up parts of Iowa, and then especially across the Dakotas, Minnesota, back through uh, many parts of the west. We've been eating away at this, but it takes a while because drought monitor is long-term. Here's the jet stream, and you can see little ripples. Every one of these uh, going to uh, produce some areas of showers and storms anyway. Uh, and you can see them moving east and a decent trough digging in there. Middle of the week with some cooler air behind it should last three, four days. Uh, our model is trying to show the warmth coming back, though, uh, across the uh, northern plains and into the Great Lakes as we head into next weekend. So at least things are moving along through the northern tier of states and uh, that can at least produce some rain. Here's our uh, forecast for Monday. You can see showers and storms centered mainly over the central and northern Mississippi Valley in the western Great Lakes, just hit and miss along the Gulf Coast, hit and miss in the far southwest, and a few showers on up through uh, well, the Canadian border there, North, uh, North Dakota. Probably not widespread, unfortunately. And then also back into uh, parts of Montana. Systems then moving east as cooler air starts to come in. You can see some scattered showers and storms from eastern uh, Canada all the way down toward the Gulf Coast. Hit and miss again in the desert southwest. Taking a look at Friday, that uh, first cool front is all the way to the east coast and past the Gulf Coast. That's going to bring some uh, cooler air. Obviously, it's still going to be warm in the southeast, but scattered showers and thunderstorms along the front and then cooler air behind that secondary front once again, trying to come into the far northern plains. Let's take a look at the 30 day outlook. I'm going above normal for the west, northern plains, northern Great Lakes and the northeast. Below normal, though, Tennessee Valley, western Tennessee Valley, back across Texas and the parts of the southwest. Precipitation, boy, that's a large area of above normal, but that's the way it looks from the southeast central plains into the southwest. Below normal, then, northern portions of the country. Time. Thanks, Mike. Well, Tuesday marks one year since the derecho blasted across the Midwest. So how do crop conditions and the crop potential look in those areas this year? Our roundtables are next. Welcome back. Well, joining us now, Jared Creed, Mike North to talk about the markets. Jared, you're in Iowa. I want to start with you because coming up on Tuesday will mark the one year anniversary of the derecho. You work with a lot of producers in that area. You live in Iowa. How do crop conditions look this year compared to what happened last year in August? Well, the world's much different, not only from a standpoint of the derecho a year ago, uh, but the spring planting conditions that the majority of the state experience this year is night and day different than the years prior. Uh, I would say, as the most part, we're off to one of the better starts in the state of Iowa that we've had for several years, uh, albeit Mother Nature can still throw uh, plenty of curveballs at us. Uh, I'd say the optimism level from the farmer is very high west of 35 uh, and east of I-35, maybe a few question marks depending on what kind of weather comes our way for the next 30 to 60 days. Uh, in fact, this weekend's weather pattern that potentially can come into Northeast Iowa uh, will be a big game changer, uh, whether we see crop conditions slide further uh, or if we actually start to maintain and maybe even uh, uh, look to see some increase in yield potential in, at least in my backyard in a hundred mile radius. Yeah, Mike, I mean, in, in Wisconsin, you know, that was an area that really couldn't catch a rain when you talk about the beginning of the growing season and now looking at crop conditions when it comes to like soybeans, some of the best crop conditions that we're seeing in the country actually set in Wisconsin. 
Yeah, it was a really, really odd mix of weather this year. We had a very, very dry and hot uh, June. We were very concerned about our crop as we headed into July, and everything has changed. You know, even as I walk my fields, uh, I can uh, tell you that the crop report I'd give you today is far more optimistic, far more cheery than the one I would have given you back in June. Um, that condition uh, really could change though if August got really, really hot and dry. Um, you know, we're, we're still needing some rain to kind of nurse us along. We've been getting it, which is why the conditions have improved so much. Um, and, and I think uh, the way things look right now with the rain over the next few days, that should help us really put some finish to this and, uh, you know, help things uh, move towards a pretty good yield in, in Wisconsin. Well, speaking of yields, Jared, I mean, we're coming up next week. We're going to see USDA release the next report. Typically in August, we see USDA go out in fields and kind of take some yield samples. Uh, did away with that recently. And so what are your expectations when it comes to this next report from USDA as far as yield and production goes? Well, I'm glad you brought that up, that uh, I think this is our third year that we don't have the objective yield plot data from the actual USDA plots. Uh, so you're heavily dependent on survey results and at the same time heavily dependent on satellite data. Uh, personal opinion, I don't think you're going to see a lot of wiggle room in the yield here in August. Uh, most of the focus will be on that on the August WASD. Shouldn't have a lot of focus from the demand side. The demand side should really get more attention into September and October after the September quarterly stocks report. Uh, at this point in time, I don't feel that you're going to see much of a yield change in beans. Uh, and if anything, I think you can maybe see a corn yield move a bushel either way, uh, not necessarily suggesting that, uh, you know, we're going to start a trend to start moving that yield lower. It's a story of have and have nots. Uh, just depends where you're at in the U.S. We'll get into the demand picture coming up on U.S. Farm Report. But Mike, when it comes to actually crop production and some of the changes, what do you expect from USDA this next round? I don't know. I don't expect any changes on soybeans as as we go through this August number. Corn is going to be the one to watch, and uh, because we don't have that objective uh, field data, it's going to be difficult for them to likely make a whole lot of changes uh, to the number as we come through the August report as well. We're probably going to have to wait to find that later uh, as we start to get into a little bit more, um, you know, real objective view of the crop, you know combine reports or otherwise. Um, but I wouldn't expect a lot of change in the August report. I know there's been a lot of surveys coming out, you know, that are touching that 176 or somewhere uh, close to that. I would tend to agree with that as we look at final yields to you know, what Jared said, that, you know, we do have the haves and have nots this year. And it's a, it's a matter of trying to figure out uh, where we're going to be, but to say that we're going to have a trend line yield, which is essentially a three bushel better yield than the all time record. Uh, it's kind of a tough stretch given the hardship that's faced in the northern and western part of the Corn Belt. Well, it seems like it's turned into the haves and have-nots when it comes to demand as well. We will get into that later on U.S. Farm Report. An increase in confirmed COVID-19 cases is taking over headlines again, but the pandemic did cause some changes, and some of those changes may surprise you. Here's John Phipps. There will undoubtedly be an outpouring of research on the COVID pandemic. It may never be fully documented, but some of the changes are worth noting now. For example, the baby boom effect. After previous social interruptions, such as the New York blackout of 77, 
has turned out to be mostly a myth. For the pandemic, not only is there no hint of increased birth now, nine months later, but a baby bust may be coming. The birth rate plummeted after isolation to slow pandemic spread. The quarter ending December 2020 shows about 4% fewer babies than expected. At the same time, though, companion animals like dogs and cats were popular family additions. Pet ownership increased from 67 to 70% of households in one year, an all-time high, according to the American Pet Products Association. Speculation why this is occurring include isolation and loneliness and increased time to spend with those animals. The eye-opener for me was the jump in pet food spending, a whopping 11%. Industry analysts attribute most of that increase to purchases of perceived higher quality pet foods. People are choosing the same food qualities for pets that we've been talking about for people like organic or non-GMO. Meanwhile, increased pet ownership has created an overload for veterinarians. As reported in the Chicago Tribune, some clinics have seen an estimated 75% increase in their patient load. Appointments that used to be made within days are now month waits. Animal shelters are seeing higher adoptions and sharply no lower numbers of animals taken in. Like practically every sector of the economy, the worker shortage, including vets, vet techs, and even office help, is a big problem. Not surprisingly, vet bills are getting bigger, but it would seem to be one expense pet owners will not cut. The fate of rural mixed animal practices, however, is grimmer. As large animals become increasingly concentrated, those producers often have in-house veterinarians. Outside of those careers, the money to pay back enormous student debt from vet school makes small animal practice the specialty of choice. With 90% of vet students and 60% of practicing vets now female, resistance of livestock owners to female vets and new graduate preferences may spell the end of the iconic country vet. COVID may not have changed everything, but it changed many unexpected things a lot. Thanks, John. Well, rural vaccination rates are actually on the increase. We'll tell you where. But first, Machinery Pete takes us to the countryside to check out some antique iron. Hey, it's tractor tail time, folks. And this week, we're going to North Central Illinois, and we're going to learn about an Oliver Super 44. We're down to a rear tractor here right now. Super 44, it come out of uh, North Carolina. And a jobber picked up a whole semi-load of little tractors down from North Carolina and, and took them up to Madison, Wisconsin. He had a lot of 440s and a lot of cultivators. This was the only uh, 44 he had. It had white wheels on, and that wasn't nothing too beautiful to look at, so it got totally stripped down and changed. They use this for tobacco farming. It's been pretty good. Uh, I put an extra step on the side here because that's a little high to jump on for uh, when you get older. The downfall, it's got a six-volt battery. Yeah. Ain't gonna happen. Otherwise, it just goes through the parades and shows off because it's 
it's a side sitter and steering wheel and uh, that was great in tobacco farms with just a one row cultivator you had a broad view and uh, there was only 750 some 57 i think uh, made of these tractors so they're pretty rare and right now they're pretty pricey <laughs> and this one will be pretty pricey too <laughs> drought conditions in the west aren't improving in fact things are growing more dire by the day for many farmers and ranchers we'll tell you why next u.s farm report is produced and distributed by farm journal broadcast Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Well, drought in the West continues to be devastating for agriculture this year. The latest drought monitor didn't provide much hope with shades of red and orange painted across the map. A quarter of the entire country, in fact, is considered to be in extreme drought conditions. And it's causing farmers and ranchers in the West to make some dire decisions as we show you this weekend in our Farm Journal report. Grasshoppers taking over pastures and farm fields. Oh my God. Corn so short it has to be chopped with a draper head. Something I never ever thought I'd do in my life. The drought in the north and west is gut-wrenching. Bring the rain, baby. Oh my God, bring some rain. Wishing for rain is a constant this year, as cattle producers are already forced with tough decisions in the midst of drought. It's so widespread that I'm afraid it's going to be um, pretty devastating to the industry and in that hay, hay in our country is liable to be really hard to find. The prices are going up every day. Conditions are so dire, Southeast Oregon farmer Bob Skinner had to pull his cattle off of federal BLM land, which he uses for grazing, a month and a half early this year. There's no pasture anywhere, period, around here. Uh, it doesn't matter where you go or how much you pay for it, you can't find pasture. So you couple that with the drought, the grasshoppers, the lack of hay. I don't see anything good coming out of this thing. A swarm of grasshoppers like this. Skinner capturing this scene in his area of Oregon. Yeah, I've got the state is coming here tomorrow. I think they're getting tired of listening to me. And they're coming here tomorrow to uh, look at our grasshopper situation. But they told me before they come, they're not going to be able to do anything. Frustrating. But it's grasshoppers taking over drought-stricken fields all across the north and west. The hoppers just taking it. Nothing. Affiliate KFYR spoke to Trevor Steak, a producer in North Dakota, who's chronicling the grasshopper damage as he's documenting drought. You can see where my barley field is. I have 300 acres of barley and of hay bed barley, and all you can see is, I mean, it's, it's, they have eaten it to the ground. There is nothing left. In a normal year, Steak would get 1,500 to 3,000 bales on a thousand acre field. This year, he bailed 53. It's going to be a tough year. A lot of tough decisions are going to have to be made. As a result, Steak already cut his sheep herd from 150 to 38. And in central Wyoming, similar decisions are being made. Now, I know people that made some pretty major adjustments real early in May and June because they could see their, their conditions were bad enough. Niels Hansen decided several years ago to not keep any cows during the winter due to limited resources. Instead, the yearling operator markets his cows in August and September. Some of the rumors that we hear, it looks like a guaranteed loss. So we don't want to go there. But at the same time, we've got uh, 
know, family farmers, farmer feeders that we're working with, and they're pretty dependent on our, our business and, and they've done a good job for us. We're trying to to walk that tightrope. Making the situation even worse for Oregon ranchers is the fact farmers are pulling water off hay ground and moving it to row crops. What worries me from uh, as a as a producer here is the long term of this thing. Skinner sits on a national executive committee and he says in talking with producers across the country his biggest fear is feed costs and availability. I'm telling you that this thing is so widespread that I'm afraid that uh, they're just the forage and, and hay is just going to be critical. I don't see anything other than the fact that people are going to have to start culling their herds pretty quick. Farmers and ranchers in the Klamath River Basin are also dealing with a water crisis. Federal regulators shut off irrigation water to farmers in the reservoir earlier this year. Normally, I make about 600 tons of hay a year and I sell half of that and then feed the other half to my cows. Uh, this year, I got 60, so 10% of my normal. Now, instead of having enough hay to feed, he's forced to buy feed. I'm going to feed all the hay that I made. Um, we're going to feed a lot longer this year. So uh, long story short, I'm looking to buy about 400 tons of hay if I can find it. Just this week, USDA announcing it's investing $15 million in the Klamath River Basin. The money will be used for a new drought pilot program that USDA says will provide drought relief to producers. That definitely will help, yes. Is it is enough to make people whole? No. Um, but is it enough to hopefully keep some people alive? Um, I think that along with you know some other things, I do think that it will definitely help the people here in the basin. Kara Hart is a reporter for Red River Farm Network covering Minnesota, North Dakota and South Dakota. I think farmers and ranchers, no matter where you're at in the region, are feeling the impact. The drought monitor this week shows no improvement in those three states. USDA recently announced it would allow emergency grazing and haying on CRP lands, but Hart says even that solution is hitting roadblocks. If a county qualifies for haying and grazing CRP ground, emergency haying and grazing CRP ground, and also qualifies for the livestock forage program, only certain CRP practices can be hayed, limiting what's available. And she says a fix will require Congress's help. To get permanent changes to that fine, people are going to have to make changes to the Farm Bill. Um, the, the 2018 Farm Bill has language, I think, that F, FSA is referencing here and, and to change that it's going to take longer than this year. Well, not perfect. Hart says producers like Jake Thompson of Barnesville, Minnesota, are already emergency haying CRP ground this week, fearing his severe drought conditions could become worse. He's trying to get what he can, and he's not just going to keep that for himself. He's got cattle to, to feed some cow-calf pairs, but he also has in-laws in North Dakota, I think, that are going to be using some of that. From the drought-stricken fields in the West to Capitol Hill, calls for help continue. That's as the drought situation grows more desperate by the day. Now, both the Senate and the House are looking at other drought relief efforts and changes in WIP Plus. So those changes still need to be approved. But for details on current emergency grazing efforts available today, you can visit your local FSA office. Well, when we come back, demand continues to be a big wild card this year. We'll discuss it in our roundtables next. Find farm equipment on Machinery Pete's auction. Items close August 17th. Go to auctions.machinerypeat.com to register. No reserve, no buyer fees. Start bidding now at auctions.machinerypeat.com. 
Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Jared, we talked about the crop production, what your expectations are from USDA. But as we see WASD this week, you know, there are a lot of question marks when it comes to China. Buys have kind of been very quiet. USDA seems a little aggressive when it comes to their, their number for corn demand. Do you think that USDA starts to make some of those revisions soon? Well, I don't think they can make any changes on the 2020-2021 balance sheet until September or most likely October at the earliest after the September stocks report. Uh, I do think you have a little bit of risk of seeing somewhere around 100 to 150 million bushel cut in old crop corn exports that certainly could still be on the high side. Uh, but if that actually comes to fruition, it opens up uh, the door to making any changes on the 2021-22 balance sheet. Uh, I wouldn't expect any changes from a demand side for that crop until probably January at the earliest. Um, so you're kind of in a dead zone from a demand perspective, unless you see uh, a new wave of Chinese buying or for that matter, any other countries. Uh, I think that, you know, the high prices to cure high prices has somewhat come to fruition in the last couple of months as our export sales uh, and chatter on that front has been relatively mundane. Uh, so you just got to see some new sales come onto the books here in the next couple of weeks uh, or a couple of months, I should say, to avoid any type of uh, negative headwind going into the first quarter of 2022. Well, China hasn't been immune to some of the weather issues when it comes to crop production, Mike. I, mean, I know China is always a mystery when it comes to demand. But do you think there is an opportunity to see more demand come in from China? There's a possibility. Uh, to your point, the Henan province has been flooding, and that province represents about 9% of Chinese corn production. There could be a little bit of a retraction in their numbers, but you know, I'm always uh, first to say that I never trust data that comes out of China. You know, watch what they do, don't listen to what they say. So as we, you know, observe their demand, it'll be more a matter of uh, of seeing how they come to the table. They were, you know, pretty aggressive buyers when corn was at five dollars. Now that we're at five and a half, they've seemed to have, you know, backed away a little bit. Um, you know, there was some sales that came through on Thursday with uh, the export numbers uh, showing a little bit of a perkier uh, export uh, than what was expected. Um, but that could be attributed to the Ar Argentinian trucker strike and the inability to load boats there. So as we talk about you know, what's going on with, with China going forward. I think the other thing to keep in mind is African swine fever has become an issue again for them. We haven't seen the mass uh, reduction in, in herd size like we saw in 2019, uh, 2018. But um, at this stage in the game, it, it's, it's a mystery at what they're going to need for feed and how much more they're going to need to offset maybe some of these crop losses they've had. Yeah, Jared, is China remains a mystery. And you look at some of these 2022 pricing opportunities. What do producers need to be thinking out, thinking about as they're heading even into the 2021 harvest right now? Well, the conversations we've had here recently is make sure they remember back to 2012, 2013 uh, mistakes that happened on many farms, uh, buying high priced inputs, not selling to grain, putting themselves in a negative margin situation pretty quickly uh, into 13 and 14. Uh, some of these input prices right now, from a fertility standpoint, being up 75 to 90% higher year on year, going to create some tough decisions. A lot of my client base can actually make a decent return uh, at uh, 12 and a half to $13 beans and $5 cash corn. 
Well, from grains to milk, I mean, you look at these COVID-19 cases, okay, and you see the headlines and there's concerns about what, uh, you know, restrictions will we see put into place. New York now requiring vaccines to eat in restaurants. When you look at the dairy side, do you think that does create some downside risk for prices? Yeah, ultimately, you know, as 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 we look at COVID, that's that's part of what's been stressing out even the soybean market. You know, our concerns about what's going to happen in Asia. The good news for dairy here domestically is that, as we saw in the COVID pandemic, there was a big heightened interest in retail demand for dairy, and fluid milk sales went up, and cheese demand uh, was on the rise. And what's what's fun about this year is that we're we're seeing even more cheese demand than what we did last year which was heightened from the previous year. All right, Mike, Jared, thank you so much for joining us this weekend. Stay with us because speaking of COVID-19, actually rural vaccination rates are on the rise. We'll tell you where next. Join Andrew McRae for Farming the Countryside, a farmer-focused podcast all about production agriculture. Brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven, the nitrogen-producing microbes that stay put, whether or not. Visit pivotbio.com. Well, COVID-19 concerns ramped up this week, but rural COVID-19 vaccination rates are also on the rise. As the push to get America vaccinated continues, we are definitely seeing an, an, an uptick. Rural vaccination rates are on the rise. Especially within the last two to three weeks, um, we have started seeing uh, uh, an increase in, in, in traffic. According to analysis of current CDC data by Daily Yonder, 19 states saw rising rural vaccination rates over the past week, with the biggest jump in Kansas up 57%. And neighboring Missouri experienced a COVID-19 vaccination uptick of 25% in those rural areas, something Ryan Summers, who owns Summers Pharmacy, is seeing firsthand. May and June, we weren't giving shots most days. If we did, it was just one or two. Uh, but since... Fourth of July, it has really taken off as far as the vaccines have gone. Summer says over the past month, his 12 Missouri locations have seen vaccination rates increase 20 to 30 percent. It's the younger population, so it's 20, 30, 40 year olds uh, doing a lot of kids now. So we started doing the Pfizer, so 12 to 17 year olds. So we're doing a lot of that. Uh, they're all they're all saying the same thing. They're nervous about going back to school. Uh, they're nervous about if the person next to them gets COVID, will they have to quarantine? And for the drugstore in Haskell, Texas, Nathan Berkeley has seen a mix of ages coming through his pharmacy door. From the age range of 12 to 18, 20% uh, of our traffic for vaccinations uh, has come from that age group. Um, uh, looking at younger adult age, about a little less than 20%. But the majority of recent vaccinations in his area are actually coming from the older age group. And about 60% of our vaccinations have come from patients 40 and up. The Daily Yonder shows vaccinations for rural Texans jumped 24% in two weeks. That's a CDC data shows some rural counties are seeing COVID cases double. You can tell by looking at the cocktail of what's being prescribed, what it's being used for. So um, even though I may not you know, be able to directly ask that patient, well, are you, or do you have COVID? We, we, we know. So we, we know that those cases are on the rise. While the drugstore in Haskell, Texas doesn't conduct COVID testing, Summers Pharmacy in Missouri does, as their stores are seeing an influx in testing too. The testing is probably more than it was back 
uh, when it, everything started. This Delta variant has a lot of people really scared, really spooked. Um, so, you know, even people have slight, some runny nose, slight, they're coming in and getting tested just to be positive that uh, they don't have it. But for pharmacies like Summers, the COVID-19 tests can tell you if you're positive, but not for what strain. And the rural hospital in Haskell, Texas, also confirmed their test does not detect the Delta strain either. A recent Farm Journal survey found of those who have not been vaccinated, more than a third say it's because they've already had COVID-19. And a quarter said it was due to concerns over possible side effects. None of the respondents listed the reason as lack of vaccine availability. Initially, Moderna was the only one we were able to, to have access to, then Johnson & Johnson. Um, Pfizer was not really available for a smaller uh, size pharmacy, but we've actually been able to get our hands on Pfizer now. As both pharmacies we talked to went from COVID-19 vaccines going to waste to now using all the doses in a single vial. The race to get rural America vaccinated continues. Now, the Missouri governor says in a one-week period in mid-July, Missouri saw triple the amount of doses ordered. And since then, he says the rate has stayed at around 21,000 doses per week. All right, when we come back, John Phipps. What happened to the co-ops in Canada? Well, Western Canada is also battling severe drought conditions and wildfires this year. But there's another trend developing in the prairies. Here's John Phipps. I got an interesting reply from a neighbor in Canada. I watched with interest the segment this past week on co-ops. I live in Manitoba, and in the Canadian prairie provinces, we have seen, in general, the demise of the co-op in the agriculture sector over the past, say, 20 years. When I was involved with the grain merchandising sector, it was dominated by large cooperatives such as United Grain Growers, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta Wheat Pools, and of course, the Canadian Wheat Board. These competed very effectively with private grain companies, including Cargill Limited. Furthermore, producers and townies typically shopped at the local co-op for food and banked at the local credit union, also a cooperative. None of the co-op grain merchants exist any longer. The credit unions are dominated by our banks, with the remaining federation of co-ops major line of business being retail food and refining marketing of petroleum. This is said to be progress, as most producers are choosing to handle marketing and hedging themselves. I'm not so sure. And that's from Ray Kohanek in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Uh, Thanks for writing and send me an address and I'll send you a $7 mug. While the fate of ag co-ops varies internationally, your comments, these comments, uh, could just as well come from Europe. This pattern of evolution or devolution in co-ops is not necessarily based on some systemic failure, though. It seems to me to be a rational response to market forces. What we often overlook is how tenacious the small and medium-sized farm customer has been during this agribusiness consolidation. As I've mentioned before, land ownership is the controlling factor for farm size. Until some entity wants to invest billions and can find willing sellers, farm holdings of a few hundred acres will continue to churn but persist. These owners of modest tracts of land sell or rent land for reasons other than the highest price. Besides, there's little economic value to be captured by such an investment when it's widely known most farmers don't make money most years. 
why invest in a value chain link that people operate at a loss reliably? Relative to the business that we buy from and sell to, we have not grown as fast, making transaction less peer-to-peer -peer and more David to Goliath. Years ago, I incorrectly predicted much larger average farm size by now to balance this situation. Co-ops may not have lost their way so much as farms are following much more slowly. Thanks, John. Well, it's a dream game for many baseball fans, especially those in agriculture. The Field of Dreams happens this week and they have a special uniform. We'll show you next. From the Olympics to Field of Dreams, one iconic cornfield in Iowa will come to life this next week. Postponed by a year due to the pandemic, the Chicago White Sox and New York Yankees are set to play a game at the Field of Dreams in Dyersville, Iowa. And a week before the game, MLB unveiled the throwback uniforms for the teams this year that they will wear. The game happens Thursday in an 8,000-seat stadium created for the event. It'll be nationally televised on Fox. A dream come true for some, I'm sure. Well, that does it this weekend. Thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to watch us again next week as we work to build on our tradition. Thanks so much. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.